Welcome to Homestead Gardening in the Texas Gulf Coast with Kristen Howard. Today we're talking about growing food in a drought. Most of my landscape design clients ask for drought tolerant or drought resistant plants for their ornamental gardens. And although that's a nice thought, often those plants tolerant of these conditions aren't particularly pretty to look at. They don't produce food, they don't produce flowers in most cases, and they tend to have small leaves with olive drab tones. The value of the plants is only that they can handle extreme conditions, but that doesn't mean they will be beautiful under those conditions. But even so, it's actually not the best idea to grow drought-tolerant plants in Houston most of the time, because we frequently have too much rainfall throughout the year, making drought-resistant or drought-tolerant plants pretty unhappy most of the time, unless they are duly adapted to both drought and a lot of water. When it comes to vegetable gardening though, because plants are only alive for the season they actually grow in, you can plan for heavy spring or fall rains and drought summers much easier. And you really should if you've noticed these patterns in your area. Houston may experience rainfall in summer, but certain areas of the larger Houston and surrounding areas may be skipped over and experience drought conditions. This year, that's exactly what happened. And on top of everything, Houston experienced many days over 100 degrees, which usually doesn't happen because Houston is accustomed to many cloudy days, even in summer. We have so many cloudy days in Houston that I actually joke, I only wear my sunglasses when I travel to other areas in Texas, like Dallas and Austin, because I don't even need sunglasses in Houston. I boast that Houston has 12 months of growing potential, so what do Houston gardeners do in order to garden in a drought? You know, in episode 15 of this podcast channel, I named five must-have heat-loving food crops. I list crops that love heat and produce food in hot climates, but these crops may still need some supplemental water to produce a really good-sized crop due to drought conditions, which is completely normal and fine. This is because it's surprisingly easy to grow drought-tolerant or drought-resistant plants in a drought, but you may only succeed at growing the plant and not growing a plant that can reproduce, which is what is required if you want food from your garden. At least this is true of most of your warm season crops. So supplemental water helps the plant continue to produce and not just survive. Vegetable gardeners often expect to have to water their garden anyways, and rarely seek out plants that may require less care or less water in summer or in drought. It's also more common for southern vegetable gardeners in zones 8 and 9 specifically to buy seeds or plants better suited for Midwest or northern climates. So lots of watering is just expected. But what if you thought about gardening specifically for the climate you live in now, instead of gardening like you live in those other climate zones and other areas of the country that don't have our unusual coastal or warm weather. The episode 15 podcast sets up this week's episode, Growing Food in a Drought, very, very nicely. If you haven't already listened, it may be worth listening to that very short episode first to take away some of the mystery, but you can easily listen to it afterwards as well to pick up some extra tips. I offered some interesting plant suggestions in episode 15 that I do recommend everyone grows next warm season, whether you experience drought conditions or not, because those plants just love the heat and they will not let you down. This week's episode will expand on episode 15, assuming you're already growing crops that are better suited for your hot climate, 
and help you understand how to grow in those conditions when they become more extreme than you expected. In this week's episode, I'll explain how your soil is or is not helping you water correctly, how to adjust your water technique for drought conditions, and additional watering strategies to allow you to get through a drought easier or just have a more successful garden. You'll notice I am mentioning a lot about watering when this episode is called Growing Food in a Drought, but with gardening, everything goes hand in hand, and solving your watering problem doesn't necessarily mean dumping more water to solve that problem, but it will seem that simple once you finish this episode. Just to be clear so you know where I'm coming from as a vegetable gardener, I do still water my food-producing plants, and I water by hand. However, I have an aversion to working long hours in the heat, and I do not have enough pressure for my water well to run both the water to the house and water to various places around my property at the exact same time. So I have to be careful about what I grow, because a lot of my plants have to survive on their own more than maybe a normal person's garden would in a smaller yard or residential yard. We won't dive too deep into the principles of watering, but I will get a little bit more technical today as I really think it's necessary to understand the why with gardening in order to become not just a better gardener, but an intuitive gardener. Our first topic today is about soil. The way you water your vegetable garden plants is determined by the type of plant you are growing and the type of soil you are growing in. For example, soils that contain a lot of organic matter hold water better than soils without organic matter. Typically, a garden, whether it is an ornamental or edible garden, will use and deplete organic matter over time. So if you notice that the first year you grow a plant, it grows really well, but mysteriously the second year growing that same plant, it's not growing very well, or maybe it seems to dry out faster, you're watering more frequently. This is usually due to a depletion of organic matter. Another example is soil with smaller pore space, like clay, holds water longer than soil with larger pore space, like sand. In case you haven't heard this phrase before, pore space refers to the air gaps between soil particles. And finally, the infiltration rate of your soil determines how effective your watering strategy is and how much or how quickly you water can change how much water the plant roots actually get. I'd have to get very technical to explain infiltration rate further, but basically, there's only so much water that you can apply to the soil that can drain through that soil depending on the amount of pore space your soil has and how fast the water is being applied to the soil. At some point, the water will begin to run off and cannot enter the soil if the water is applied too quickly, which is what happens during flash floods. The large amount of water doesn't cause the flooding conditions alone, but the large amount of water combined with a short time period causes the water to sheet flow into lower areas, and that total event is what causes the flood. So let's dive into these three examples, organic matter, soil type, and infiltration rate, to help you understand what's happening to your soil to better connect with this episode. First, does your garden soil contain organic matter or not? And how do you know? Organic matter is rich, dark, has a pleasant earthy smell, and holds water easily. Soil with compost, which usually contains organic matter, can actually crumble just like soil without organic matter if it dries out and the organic component dies. Your compost can dry out and actually lose organic matter, which begs the question, can you call it compost anymore? The answer is no. 
I had bought compost before and not finished it quickly enough. Then when I go to use it, I realize the beds with this dry compost are not actually filled with rich organic matter, but really just a bunch of compost turned into a well-draining soil structure that has become depleted of nutrients. I'm sure this has happened to you, and you know what? It happens to professionals as well. A local Houston company uses a very nice expensive soil that already includes organic matter to fill up their clients' vegetable beds. But when I spoke with them, they complained that their soil tests were coming up as nutrient depleted. I later found out that they were delivering soil to their projects a few days before using it, allowing that soil with that rich organic matter added in to dry out not supplementing with rich, fresh compost afterwards because they didn't think they would have to. They didn't have experience with large projects and didn't understand the repercussions of Houston's heat and sun on a pile of once healthy soil. And this can be just as complicated for a home garden as it is for a large company installing a project because sometimes it takes us more than a day to finish a project as home gardeners. So keeping your soil or compost watered if it's healthy and alive even before it's moved to the bed is a good idea, especially keeping it covered so you don't lose any nitrogen. The organic component of the compost are the microbes, and we want to make sure that we're keeping their environment properly hydrated and keep them from drying out. So what happens when your soil or compost dries out? Can you fix it? Water is going to sort of bead and run off the top of a dry soil or a dry compost that isn't rich with organic matter, or sometimes it will run straight through. So you know if your garden has organic matter currently, if it's not dry and crumbly, if it has a rich color, a pleasant earthy smell, and holds and absorbs water easily. If it is dry and the organic matter is depleted, you can't fix it just by watering, but you can add more organic matter to it or a liquid microbe back in, and I'll talk more about that later. Next, your soil type, or rather the type of soil structure you have, Will determine how you water, so you need to know what type of soil you have. This is pretty easy. Most vegetable gardeners bring in a soil mix for their raised beds that contain a little bit of everything to make sure the structure of the soil or soil type is ideal for vegetable gardening specifically. However, if you're growing directly in ground instead of a raised bed, you can wet the soil, pick up a small amount, roll it in your hands into a cylinder or worm shape, and find out what soil type you have on your own. Clay soils hold their shape, loam soils partially hold their shape, and sandy soils fall apart and can't hold the shape when rolled. To know whether or not you can plant in ground, you should really do a soil test, but you don't need to do a soil test for soil type since you can easily find that out on your own. Instead, test for nutrients and pollutants. If you're mixing your own raised garden soil, you need to have a nice balance of materials that hold water and drain water easily. And you may be able to incorporate some of your own soil to do this if it's healthy or the right structural addition, but you definitely need to make sure you include organic matter. Yes, we just talked about that previously, but everything works together with gardening. There isn't just one component that makes a garden successful. I actually know a few gardeners that grow only in organic matter, straight compost. This is not necessary, and in fact, it's a waste of money. You only need about an inch of organic matter worked into the top few inches of soil, so the beneficial microbes from that organic matter can infiltrate the entire soil profile over time until you need to apply organic matter again the next season. Great soil structure plus organic matter will offer you a great foundation for a garden that can survive a drought in addition to watering, of course. 
And last, the infiltration rate of your soil, meaning how fast you apply a given amount of water, is going to determine the way you water. Okay, so once you know the other two things about your soil, whether or not you have organic matter and what soil type you have, you will understand how much water can be absorbed easily into your soil and how fast water moves through the soil. Knowing this information, you can change how much water you add at one time to manipulate how you water your garden. So most vegetable gardens should have the ability to drain easily while being rich enough in organic matter to hold water as already explained. But as the weather becomes hotter, your soil is more at risk of drying out, making it more difficult to hang on to that water. Without natural rainfall, which is the case in drought conditions, it is even more challenging to apply enough water to the soil and have your bed stay moist to maintain these conditions. You may be thinking that mulching will solve your problems, and later in this episode I'll talk about mulching and how it may benefit you in some ways. But even if your soil includes rich compost and is topped with mulch, you still need to figure out how to water correctly in a drought. This is because normal watering usually only allows water to enter the first inch or so of the soil surface or less if you have a mulch layer. So let's talk about watering normally versus watering deeply in this next segment to solve the infiltration rate issue during a drought. Okay, watering normally versus watering deeply. Let's say you already know how to measure how much water to apply to your soil and for how long in normal conditions. Let's say under normal conditions you have rainfall and are supplementing water for your vegetable garden through hand watering or through an irrigation system. You know that you just need to apply X amount of gallons of water for X amount of time for perfect watering to bridge the gap between weekly natural rainfall. And you know that you can do this, let's say two times a week, about every three days, just as an example. This watering schedule is fine because with supplemental rainfall, we assume the entire soil profile gets watered and the organic matter in the soil is able to stay moist and healthy. This would be your normal watering schedule. Now, what's your strategy during a drought? Let me guess, you do the same thing as I mentioned before, but you increase the times that you water to every day instead of just a few times a week, right? Well, that's usually what people think, and that's where you're wrong. If you keep your normal watering protocol in a drought, even by watering every day, you only water the first one inch of soil and the rest of the soil will dry out. In a drought, you have to switch to a deep watering schedule. Remember, if we are only keeping the top one inch of soil wet during normal watering and relying on natural rainfall to completely saturate the soil profile, we have to bridge this gap somehow. We have to become the rainfall. And that sounds a little crazy, but that's what we're trying to do here. We have to create the same effect as rainfall has on soil, which is complete saturation through the soil profile. And in order to do this, we reduce how fast you apply the water and increase the time it takes you to water. Most people who have an irrigation system for their vegetable garden use a drip tubing system to do this. Drip tubing is very successful because it applies water at a very slow rate. Many people install this on the soil surface because the tubing is UV resistant, but this strip tubing was designed to be under the soil or at the very least under mulch. It was designed to grow deep roots for plants and not just hydrate the top one inch of soil. So consider covering your tubing if you install this or if you have it installed already. Now, if you're hand watering like me, this gets tricky. First, make sure you're watering the soil and not the plants when you hand water. Also, find ways to drench the soil without allowing the water to run off. This is tough. It takes a few tries to get it right. 
My technique is to water the way I normally would, which only wets that first one inch of the soil. And this will prime the top of the soil and allows water to move through that one inch easier instead of immediately running off. Then I come back and I water deeply after that. I turn my hose pressure down and I let the water slightly pool as long as it's not causing any damage to my plants. Sometimes that pooling water, if the pressure's too high on the hose, will disturb the plant roots. So just make sure you're not doing that. This is easier in raised beds where the edge of the raised bed actually keeps in this pooled water. Drier soil will still run the water off if you don't have something to retain it. And you may have to try a few times carefully applying water, or you can create rings with soil so the water hangs out in a well around the roots and infiltrates slowly. You can actually do this with soil or with mulch in in-ground beds. While I wait for this deep watering to occur, because obviously I do have to move the hose around for this, I usually do other chores. I pull weeds, I trim plants, whatever I need to do. And in drought conditions, usually there's plenty still to do. The frequency of deep watering is going to depend on your soil structure and how much organic matter is in your soil already to retain moisture until the next watering. To find out how frequently you should water, you need to use a soil probe, specifically a moisture meter that can measure water at various depths in the soil profile. This is an incredibly inexpensive tool, but it will be damaged if you leave it outside. I am guilty of leaving tools outside all the time, so I usually have to do a dig and check test, but the moisture meter is really the only foolproof way to know whether or not it's time to deep water again. Here's another deep watering trick that I like, especially if you need to catch up or if it's really hot outside, which usually in a drought that goes hand in hand. Even though I coach all my landscape design clients to water in the early morning so the plant can use the water most effectively, sometimes you have to do your first few deep waterings at night to catch up. The first time you realize you need a deep water, I can promise you that you will already be behind. So watering deeply on night one then coming back the next morning, let's call this morning day two, you can water deeply again that morning. Check on the soil on night two to see how it's going with your moisture meter. If the soil is still dry, you may need to deep water again on night two. If not, check on morning three and deep water then if it's necessary. So what if this deep watering strategy isn't working for you? If your soil is not staying moist with the deep watering strategy, you need to utilize other strategies in addition to your deep watering. Composting. So let's dive into these three examples, organic matter, soil type, and infiltration rate to help you understand what's happening to your soil to better connect with this episode. First, does your garden soil contain organic matter or not? And how do you know? Organic matter is rich, dark, has a pleasant earthy smell, and holds water easily. Soil with compost, which usually contains organic matter, can actually crumble just like soil without organic matter if it dries out and the organic component dies. Your compost can dry out and actually lose organic matter, which begs the question, can you call it compost anymore? And the answer is no. I bought compost before and not finished it quickly enough. Then 
when I go to use it, I realize the beds with this dry compost are not actually filled with rich organic matter, but really just a bunch of compost turned into a well-draining soil structure that has become depleted of nutrients. I'm sure this has happened to you, and you know what? It happens to professionals as well. A local Houston company uses a very nice expensive soil that already includes organic matter to fill up their clients' vegetable beds. But when I spoke with them, they complained that their soil tests were coming up as nutrient depleted. I later found out that they were delivering soil to their projects a few days before using it, allowing that soil with that rich organic matter added in to dry out, not supplementing with rich, fresh compost afterwards because they didn't think they would have to. They didn't have experience with large projects and didn't understand the repercussions of Houston's heat and sun on a pile of once healthy soil. And this can be just as complicated for a home garden as it is for a large company installing a project because sometimes it takes us more than a day to finish a project as home gardeners. So keeping your soil or compost watered if it's healthy and alive even before it's moved to the bed is a good idea, especially keeping it covered so you don't lose any nitrogen. The organic component of the compost are the microbes, and we want to make sure that we're keeping their environment properly hydrated and keep them from drying out. So what happens when your soil or compost dries out? Can you fix it? Water is going to sort of bead and run off the top of a dry soil or a dry compost that isn't rich with organic matter, or sometimes it will run straight through. So you know if your garden has organic matter currently, if it's not dry and crumbly, if it has a rich color, a pleasant earthy smell, and holds and absorbs water easily. If it is dry and the organic matter is depleted, you can't fix it just by watering, but you can add more organic matter to it or a liquid microbe back in, and I'll talk more about that later. Next, your soil type, or rather the type of soil structure you have, will determine how you water. So you need to know what type of soil you have. This is pretty easy. Most vegetable gardeners bring in a soil mix for their raised beds that contain a little bit of everything to make sure the structure of the soil or soil type is ideal for vegetable gardening specifically. However, if you're growing directly in ground instead of a raised bed, you can wet the soil, pick up a small amount, roll it in your hands into a cylinder or worm shape, and find out what soil type you have on your own. Clay soils hold their shape, loam soils partially hold their shape, and sandy soils fall apart and can't hold the shape when rolled. To know whether or not you can plant in ground, you should really do a soil test, but you don't need to do a soil test for soil type since you can easily find that out on your own. Instead, test for nutrients and pollutants. If you're mixing your own raised garden soil, you need to have a nice balance of materials that hold water and drain water easily. And you may be able to incorporate some of your own soil to do this if it's healthy or the right structural addition, but you definitely need to make sure you include organic matter. Yes, we just talked about that previously, but everything works together with gardening. There isn't just one component that makes a garden successful. I actually know a few gardeners that grow only in organic matter, straight compost. This is not necessary, and in fact, it's a waste of money. You only need about an inch of organic matter worked into the top few inches of soil, so the beneficial microbes from that organic matter can infiltrate the entire soil profile over time until you need to apply organic matter again the next season. Great soil structure plus organic matter will offer you a great foundation for a garden that can survive a drought in addition to watering, of course. 
And last, the infiltration rate of your soil, meaning how fast you apply a given amount of water is going to determine the way you water. Okay, so once you know the other two things about your soil, whether or not you have organic matter and what soil type you have, you will understand how much water can be absorbed easily into your soil and how fast water moves through the soil. Knowing this information, you can change how much water you add at one time to manipulate how you water your garden. So most vegetable gardens should have the ability to drain easily while being rich enough in organic matter to hold water as already explained. But as the weather becomes hotter, your soil is more at risk of drying out, making it more difficult to hang on to that water. Without natural rainfall, which is the case in drought conditions, it is even more challenging to apply enough water to the soil and have your bed stay moist to maintain these conditions. You may be thinking that mulching will solve your problems, and later in this episode I'll talk about mulching and how it may benefit you in some ways. But even if your soil includes rich compost and is topped with mulch, you still need to figure out how to water correctly in a drought. This is because normal watering usually only allows water to enter the first inch or so of the soil surface or less if you have a mulch layer. So let's talk about watering normally versus watering deeply in this next segment to solve the infiltration rate issue during a drought. Okay, watering normally versus watering deeply. Let's say you already know how to measure how much water to apply to your soil and for how long in normal conditions. Let's say under normal conditions, you have rainfall and are supplementing water for your vegetable garden through hand watering or through an irrigation system. You know that you just need to apply X amount of gallons of water for X amount of time for perfect watering to bridge the gap between weekly natural rainfall. And you know that you can do this, let's say two times a week, about every three days, just as an example. This watering schedule is fine because with supplemental rainfall, we assume the entire soil profile gets watered and the organic matter in the soil is able to stay moist and healthy. This would be your normal watering schedule. Now, what's your strategy during a drought? Let me guess, you do the same thing as I mentioned before, but you increase the times that you water to every day instead of just a few times a week, right? Well, that's usually what people think, and that's where you're wrong. If you keep your normal watering protocol in a drought, even by watering every day, you only water the first one inch of soil and the rest of the soil will dry out. In a drought, you have to switch to a deep watering schedule. Remember, if we are only keeping the top one inch of soil wet during normal watering and relying on natural rainfall to completely saturate the soil profile, we have to bridge this gap somehow. We have to become the rainfall. And that sounds a little crazy, but that's what we're trying to do here. We have to create the same effect as rainfall has on soil, which is complete saturation through the soil profile. And in order to do this, we reduce how fast you apply the water and increase the time it takes you to water. Most people who have an irrigation system for their vegetable garden use a drip tubing system to do this. Drip tubing is very successful because it applies water at a very slow rate. Many people install this on the soil surface because the tubing is UV resistant, but this strip tubing was designed to be under the soil or at the very least under mulch. It was designed to grow deep roots for plants and not just hydrate the top one inch of soil. So consider covering your tubing if you install this or if you have it installed already. Now, if you're hand watering like me, this gets tricky. First, make sure you're watering the soil and not the plants when you hand water. Also, find ways to drench the soil without allowing the water to run off. This is tough. It takes a few tries to get it right. 
My technique is to water the way I normally would, which only wets that first one inch of the soil. And this will prime the top of the soil and allows water to move through that one inch easier instead of immediately running off. Then I come back and I water deeply after that. I turn my hose pressure down and I let the water slightly pool as long as it's not causing any damage to my plants. Sometimes that pooling water, if the pressure's too high on the hose, will disturb the plant roots. So just make sure you're not doing that. This is easier in raised beds where the edge of the raised bed actually keeps in this pooled water. Drier soil will still run the water off if you don't have something to retain it. And you may have to try a few times carefully applying water, or you can create rings with soil so the water hangs out in a well around the roots and infiltrates slowly. You can actually do this with soil or with mulch in in-ground beds. While I wait for this deep watering to occur, because obviously I do have to move the hose around for this, I usually do other chores. I pull weeds, I trim plants, whatever I need to do. And in drought conditions, usually there's plenty still to do. The frequency of deep watering is going to depend on your soil structure and how much organic matter is in your soil already to retain moisture until the next watering. To find out how frequently you should water, you need to use a soil probe, specifically a moisture meter that can measure water at various depths in the soil profile. This is an incredibly inexpensive tool, but it will be damaged if you leave it outside. I am guilty of leaving tools outside all the time, so I usually have to do a dig and check test, but the moisture meter is really the only foolproof way to know whether or not it's time to deep water again. Here's another deep watering trick that I like, especially if you need to catch up or if it's really hot outside, which usually in a drought that goes hand in hand. Even though I coach all my landscape design clients to water in the early morning so the plant can use the water most effectively, sometimes you have to do your first few deep waterings at night to catch up. The first time you realize you need a deep water, I can promise you that you will already be behind. So watering deeply on night one then coming back the next morning, let's call this morning day two, you can water deeply again that morning. Check on the soil on night two to see how it's going with your moisture meter. If the soil is still dry, you may need to deep water again on night two. If not, check on morning three and deep water then if it's necessary. So what if this deep watering strategy isn't working for you? If your soil is not staying moist with the deep watering strategy, you need to utilize other strategies in addition to your deep watering. Additional gardening strategies in a drought. Composting. It seems like I can't talk about organic matter enough in this episode, or probably in other episodes, but if I haven't hammered it into you yet, I'm sure I will now. If your garden is struggling to maintain moisture and the deep watering technique is not working for you, the first strategy I recommend is to top off your beds with compost. A warm climate garden, especially those in zones 8 and 9 around the Houston area, is constantly growing and you do have to replenish regularly, probably more than other gardening accounts that you follow. It's easy to forget to do this. You can help your soil by adding liquid microbials and humates during the cooler season, but during a drought, liquid additions are not going to cut it, especially if watering is running off the soil surface or running straight through. Just make sure you're keeping up with some sort of compost or microbial addition every quarter. Remember, Houston has four seasons, spring, 
summer, second summer, and fall. Mulching. Usually I don't advocate for using mulch as a way to keep moisture in the soil because it can't keep the entire soil profile moist. Just maybe reduce some moisture loss immediately after watering, but it does have other advantages that you can use. Mulch is very useful in an ornamental garden where plants are expected to grow and fill in over time as these designs place plants far apart with gaps between plants. These gaps between plants, if not mulch, leave the soil vulnerable to weeds. Remember, weed seeds, most of them, as soon as they see sunlight, will germinate. So mulch can be used in your vegetable garden in the same way as an ornamental garden, to fill in gaps when you are not planting or when plants are too young and need some time to fill in. Mulch should be used to solve short-term problems like this until the plants can fill in and suppress weeds themselves. If you want to try to use mulch for moisture retention, you actually need to use nearly decomposed mulch or finely shredded mulch, something that's between compost and hardwood mulch chips, with the expectation that the mulch can break down naturally and very, very quickly, because as the mulch turns into compost, it will hold more and more moisture. But using mulch that's just wood chips or cedar that's not expected to break down quickly or at all will not really hold any moisture for your garden. It's just going to suppress weeds and maybe keep the sun from cooking that very, very top layer of the soil. In my garden, I only use wood chips for weed suppression pathways and then maybe mixing into some of my potted plant soil to increase drainage. I actually buy cedar chips because they don't break down because I'm not using them for future compost. My water retention strategy is either compost or the next strategy I'm going to talk about which is something that can turn into compost, cover crops. Let's talk about cover crops. Cover crops are sometimes referred to as green manure crops, which I honestly think sounds a tiny bit gross, so I like to say cover crops. You can use a cover crop to prepare for a drought or use it to repair a bed after a drought instead of buying compost. You can technically start these crops during a drought too, as usually these crops are really easy to start from seed, but that's not really the appropriate time to do this. In fact, this week's YouTube episode shows how I start seeds in a drought through night planting and indoor seed sprouting, but you'll notice in the episode that I start off my planting by adding compost to my bed because I'm not growing a cover crop in this episode, but instead a late season squash. Cover crop plants are really supposed to be planted for the purpose of becoming compost, and it will be more cost-effective to wait until your drought has passed to do this. So how does a cover crop help you with watering? Well, first of all, most warm climate gardens have a distinct period where only warm season crops can grow and a distinct period where only cool season crops can grow. And then there's this overlap period where both will grow together. Usually cool season crops take up less space than warm season crops. So in the cool season, warm climate gardeners tend to have beds that aren't being used. Unused beds are fine unless they are left to dry out in the cool season, which absolutely can happen. Or beds that were used for the cool season exclusively may not be planted for a part of the warm season and are allowed to dry out when they aren't being used, which is much worse. Cover crops for cool or warm season can help suppress weeds, remind you to water, and retain the beneficial microbes in the soil, in addition to providing an opportunity for some free compost at the end of that season. After those cover crops finish growing, although you can harvest from some of them, usually they're turned over 
back into the beds and allowed to decompose as that green manure crop, which reduces or eliminates the need for compost in those beds before you plant again, depending on your planting schedule and how heavily you plant these beds. If the bed is already healthy, you can plant seeds in the top of this turned bed without an issue. My cool season cover crop of choice is barley, and I turn my barley into the bed at the end of the cool season, top it with a half inch of compost, and plant directly into the compost so I can immediately start growing and let the green manure compost itself over the next month underneath with the help of the compost topping. Basically what I'm trying to do is use that half inch of topped compost and let the microbials move through the soil and help break down that green manure faster. I could plant in this bed without adding my own compost, but honestly, I constantly have something growing in my beds and they never get time off. I usually have to do a few iterations of reintroduction of compost and it's much, much easier to already have that green manure worked in to decompose slowly. And this has worked extremely well to use both of these tools, the compost combined with a cover crop green manure to my advantage. For beds that aren't immediately planted, I turn the cover crop into the bed and then top with mulch and then I water it on a regular basis just like it was planted. The mulch makes sure that the bed doesn't accidentally allow any weed seeds to germinate after disturbing the soil and the watering allows the green manure crop to compost and keeps the bed from drying out in general. This bed may only sit unused for a few weeks, but these are all necessary steps to take to make sure it's ready for planting whenever I am ready to use it. I don't like starting seeds in beds with mulch because the mulch usually covers up those new seedlings, so I try to plant slightly older plants in those beds. My warm season cover crop of choice is the peanut plant. This will produce peanuts, which I harvest at the end of the warm season, but because the peanut growing season is so long, these plants are interplanted between my other crops and used to suppress weeds throughout the warm season as well. Peanut plants will lower the transpiration rate as the soil gets drier, making them excellent choices for beds not able to retain soil moisture quite as easily. However, if you're able to keep up with your watering while this plant is growing, the leaves will actually transpire and cool the air around your other growing plants just a little bit. A little bit can feel like a lot of relief for your other vegetable plants. Also, peanuts are a legume, like beans, and legumes can fix nitrogen in the soil. So not only can the green tops be turned into the soil after peanuts are harvested so that they can be used as green manure, but the peanut plant and other legume plants release nitrogen as they decompose. And which plants like nitrogen? leafy cool season greens that will be grown the very next season in those beds. Kind of a perfect fit. Another strategy is using oyas. Oyas are clay water holding devices that are buried in gardens and are allowed to slowly leak out moisture allowing the soil around them to be watered not just on the surface but through the deeper part of the soil profile. Oyas work through moisture tension. If the soil around the oya is wet, the water shouldn't get pulled out from the oya. If the soil is dry, the water should get pulled out of the oya and into the soil. Because oyas are not allowed to evaporate because they actually have a cover on them, oyas are considered the most efficient way of watering. You can make your own oyas by reusing unsealed terracotta pots and saucers. Simply plug the bottom opening of the pot or fill it with putty and cement 
Let it dry and then plant your oyas in your vegetable garden so the top rim is roughly level with the top of the soil or mulch in your garden. Fill the oyas with water and set the saucer on top so you don't accidentally create a mosquito breeding ground or have the sun evaporate your water. True oyas are not actually homemade like this. They don't have a really wide opening and take up a lot of space on top of the soil. So if you don't like this look, you can just simply mulch right over that saucer and cover it up until you're ready to fill it up again. Your oya spacing is going to depend on what you're growing and how far apart your crops are spaced. Many of my beds are mixed. They have lots of different types of plants and they're planted really closely. I probably need an oya every three feet in those beds because I have so many plants demanding attention and water. But for many of the vining crops suggested in episode 15, each vine is probably spaced 10 feet apart and each can have a dedicated oya next to it. Ideally with this arrangement, you would actually have one vine and one oya together and then within that three foot radius, you could have lower lying plants if that vine is growing vertically. My favorite part about using oyas is that it may be the only watering system that allows you to go on vacation. If you plan to travel for several more days than the oyas can hold water, which sometimes is only a couple days, maybe three, it is easy to have a house sitter check on your garden to fill up the oyas as opposed to watering the entire garden themselves. Irrigation systems on a timer can water your gardens too, but unlike an Oya, the irrigation system will water your plants whether they need moisture or not, may spring a leak while you're away, or may suddenly not work if for some reason your property loses electricity. The last strategy you can use to plant in drought conditions is to actually locate your garden in a part shade location. Here's what this means. When we're talking about drought, we're talking about warm climate, we're talking about summer, we're talking about long days during the season. Most vegetable garden plants need a maximum of eight hours of sun. If we have a 12 hour sunny day, it's much more beneficial for your plants instead of using all 12 hours of that day to only use six to eight and to use six to eight hours of sun during the cooler time of the day, morning sun, through partial afternoon sun instead of just afternoon and late evening sun. So you can utilize the shade of buildings, shade from trees, or if you have a garden already in a location that's not best suited for this, you can put up raised panels and grow heat loving vines on those panels and create your own shade. Make sure that you have Eastern sun, but just protect from that hot, scorching Western sun in the evening. When you change the way that you plant and begin planting in part shade conditions like this, you still need to make sure you're utilizing these other strategies that I've mentioned. Make sure you're using compost, make sure you're still watering. This is going to help you through a drought. So there you have it. Knowing what soil type you have, how much organic matter is in your soil, how to adjust your watering technique, and adding all of these strategies to help you water and maintain your garden, should help you not only grow food in a drought, but also become a better, more intuitive gardener. Oh, and it does help to grow better varieties of vegetable plants suited for your hot climate. Don't forget to check out previous podcast episodes where I mention all of my favorite varieties. Thanks so much for learning with me today. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast channel to get reminders when new episodes come out. Starting seeds year-round is how I keep a year-round productive vegetable garden. And if you want continued harvest, you'll want to have all the tools possible to be successful. 
To do this, check out this week's YouTube episode to learn how to start a new crop even in a drought through night planting. My YouTube channel goes along with this podcast as a great visual aid, so make sure you're subscribed to that channel as well. If you have questions about today's episode or just want to see what's growing on in the test garden today, find me on Instagram. Every Friday in the Instagram story section, I have free question and answer mini consultations for gardening, horticulture, landscape design, and homesteading. If you need additional design support or advice, you can always contact me through my website. All of my contact information can be found in the podcast channel description.